0: Hey, everybody. A quick note before the show. I have just finished reading, I mean, literally about an hour ago, I have just finished reading a new novel by former Elder Sign guest host Sun Yi Dean. And I really love this book, and I think that you will too. So I want to tell you a little bit about it. The book is called The Book Eaters, and, uh, well, is exactly what it says on the box there. It is about people who eat books. The story is set in the real world, our world, but the speculative element is that there is a hidden society, a secret society of people who look like humans, but aren't. And the fact that they consume books instead of pizza is really just one part of what makes them different from the rest of us. And getting a chance to explore this really evocative, really imaginative world that Dean has constructed, this was a huge part of the fun for me. Thematically, the book is an awesome exploration of the fairy tales that we give to children and then also the fantasy literature that has grown out of that fairy tale tradition. And let me read a a few lines to you just to give you a taste, a little tease. They were princesses of a kind, and this was how princesses lived. Safe in towers, married to men who competed for them one way or another. Even in the happiest fairy tales, princesses did not usually have much choice. They were prizes to be won or given away, and there was no other context in which she could understand life. And if that passage grips you the way that it gripped me, I hope you'll do yourself a favor and pick up a copy of The Book Eaters by Sun Deen. To make that easy for you, I have put a link in the show notes, but of course, you'll also be able to find this book at your local shop. Again, that is The Book Eaters by Sun Deen.
1: Welcome back to Elderside, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buda. And I'm Glenn McDormand. This episode, we are continuing our
0: examination of Niemenswasser by Robert Aikman, which was originally published in 1975. This is the second of two episodes on this story. Previous episode was the recap, which uh, I guess by default means that uh, this is the discussion episode. And Brandon, it is your turn to guide us through the
1: discussion. So where do you want to start? That's a great question. Uh, I'll start with what interests me most about this story, just by way of introducing the discussion episode, and then we'll veer off track, I suppose, and then return to that. So, what interests me most about this story is the way that Aikman blends so many of these literary movements together. All under the umbrella of the genre tragedy. And we didn't really talk about this in the recap episode, but that's really what's going on. And so that's pretty much how I'd like to organize the discussion as well is kind of move through these, is to move through these literary movements and the examples of them in the story to understand how Aikman is examining the way that tragedy functions as a genre. But I think that there are a few things we need to nail down first, and particularly some of the, the World War I stuff, which is absolutely going to tie into the way the story plays with tragedy, or maybe even will come to determine the, the tragic comic. So the first question I have here for you, Glenn, is when exactly this story takes place. We talked about this in our recap. You, you did a pretty good examination seeing you know, 1870s, 1880s, but I'd like to try to figure out how old we think Victor is when he gets shelled in World War One, And this question really comes up to me because the POTUS that Aikman mentions in the story, if I've guessed the right person here, uh, died in 1848, in the middle of the 19th century. So that leaves us with two possibilities that either Aikman had somebody else in mind, or that he's not really precisely counting time in some way. It seems to me that Victor and Elmo are in their early 20s when the story takes place, but that's still kind of a long haul to World War I. So I don't know. I'd like to nail down this timeline a little bit more deeply before we get into some of the, uh, I don't know, more theoretical genre stuff.
0: Right. Well, we know that the story has to take place between 1871 and 1888 uh, simply because we are in the uh, 19th century German empire that is ruled by uh, Wilhelm the, the first, who's the, the first German emperor. And I did say in the recap that I thought that probably we're actually right around 1880, uh, maybe Maybe 1882 or something like that, but probably not much later than that, and and certainly also not much earlier than that, because there's a, a line in here about how Wilhelm is aging and uh, kind of even a, a dotard at this point actually, and this comes up in in part of the backstory about Elmo's family and how his father is such an adept ruler. He's very good at managing their uh, their patrimony, managing the state that that patrimony is a, a part of, but then also. So he's very good at playing this new game of being part of this newly formed state, the the German Empire, in which a lot of what he has to do is Have good relations or have a good relationship with Wilhelm and his family, and so to describe him as aging, I think, needs to put this closer to his death. And so, yeah, that's where I settled on probably around 1880 or the early 1880s. Uh, But also, then I was doing, I was doing what you're doing as well, Brandon, which is going backwards from thinking of Victor having been drafted into service at the end of the First World War. How old must he have been to? you know, not be too old to qualify for that, though, of course, he's also missing a hand. And so, you know, this is where we know this must be happening at the end. This probably even happens in 1918, when basically anybody is being conscripted. But taking, I think, literally there, Aikman's phrase, a generation and a half, as meaning uh, a generation, meaning 20 years, and half of a generation or half of 20 being 10 and 20 plus 10 being 30, which is about, that's the full display of my math skills, actually, right there. (laughs) Uh, But uh, yeah, so that's that's the math that I did,
1: right? That that makes sense, right? It's it's Victor would probably be in his fifties then, I suppose. If Elmo and Victor are in their early twenties at this point, uh, when the present of the story is taking place, yeah, and I think that that's right. And and probably something we could
0: actually look at is is what was going on with. Drafting people or conscripting people in Germany at the end of the First World War, certainly there was an age limit. I don't know what that is offhand, but I would be, I, I would guess that that age, that upper age limit, there would probably be something like fifty-five. Yeah, so I think if we think of Victor and Elmo as being, I don't know, you know, uh, twenty-two or twenty-three or something like that at the the first hand incident, then yeah, that might make some sense.
1: Right. We know Elmo's older than, you know, Romeo because he's already an officer in the army, you know, and Romeo and Romeo and Juliet's like 14 or 15 or 16 or something (laughs) like that. Uh, You know, you should reread that play if you haven't. It's very funny. I I listened to it not long ago. That's a note for the audience. (laughs) Right. Uh, So, yeah, I think I think that's right. And I think, you know, that's going to come into play in a little bit when we think about, the way that death functions in tragic stories. And, you know, as we kind of move through the discussion, just keeping in mind, who, who do we think's death is more tragic, Elmo's or Victor's? And I don't know, let's let that brew as we kind of continue along this World War One bit in this story. I'm going to read a section from page 91 that describes just how it is there came to be this Vasser, this no man's water on Lake Constance. This is what uh, Spalt says. There was not always an international law governing the ownership of open water between different states. And even now, that law is very imperfect. It is distinctly controversial in various parts of the world. In our case, the international law has never been deemed to apply. The ownership of the lake surface has been governed by treaty and even by convention. One consequence, doubtless unintended, is that part of the lake surface belongs to no one. It's quite simple. So that, that's kind of what we get about the way the international community is involved in the generation of Niemann's Vasser. But you can't help <laughs> to think of having something called No Man's Water in a story that also evokes World War I and not think of No Man's Land, something that led to the huge cost of life in World War I. I wonder, Glenn, what was on your mind when you were reading this section about the treaties and not just treaties, the conventions that led to this parcel of water being governed by no one with a monster lurking underneath in relation to no man's land in World War I. I love the gimmick here of this idea
0: that there's a small spot of the lake, like out in the middle of the lake that simply no one has claimed because this like, you know, square quarter mile or something has just never been described in any of the agreements that exist between Germany and Switzerland or Germany and Austria or Switzerland and Austria or, you know, even, uh, in fact, predating the existence of any of those states, the the other communities that uh, existed prior to the creation of those states, which, of course, for Germany is, you know, quite, quite recent. As someone who is trained as an institution constitutional historian and interested in the history of law and in particular the history of international law in the early Middle Ages. Uh, To me, I just found this hilarious. I just was really amused by the idea of this, like setting aside any kind of speculative fiction element to this or supernatural element to this story. I think that's a really fun concept. But, But then, yeah, it raises the question of what is the relationship between this legal vacuum, this legal black hole here out on the lake, and the fact that there's a a monster out there, a kind of spectral woman with a (laughs) piranha mouth. Like, What's the relationship between those things? Does she exist out there because of this lack of a claim, lack of a legal claim by some kind of state on this territory? Or... Is it the other way around? Is the reason that no one has ever bothered to hammer out any kind of agreement concerning who owns that part of the lake is because it never came up, because no one ever goes on that part of the lake, because everyone always has known that there's something wrong with it. And so no one's ever needed to figure out who owns it, because nobody wants it
1: anyway. I think that's exactly right. It's the convention of abdicating responsibility for the danger here that really uh, is the connection between the monster in Niemenswasser and the loss of life in, in World War One. You know, this this total abdication of responsibility, saying it's the cost of doing business or the war, or this is the war convention, relying on this sort of language, this legal language, to explain away or dismiss the brutality of deaths that took place in, in no man's land between the trenches in World War One, where kids were just shooting at each other. And then Aikman kind of bringing this into a comic light, I think, so to speak. Uh, he was born in 1914. So he definitely lived as an adult through the horrors of World War II, um, and probably heard many stories about World War One growing up. But thinking about who is responsible for this? Who is going to s- s- be the leader who says this was wrong? These are not actions that should be taken under the conventions of this war. You know, I, th- I think that uh, in part, that is what Aikman is thinking of uh, in tying the, the imagery of Niemann's Wasser to the idea of treaties and conventions here. He also is tying the lake's imagery, though, to the the dark unconscious that drives humanity. He's not just looking at whether or not governments are responsible, but whether the people themselves who are engaged in these types of activities are, are maybe responsible for conjuring the monster itself. You know, we get descriptions of the lake being deep and this mystery of what's lurking down there. If it's not a freshwater shark, it's this kind of Hideous inversion of the Virgin Mary with a a piranha mouth. This this perversion, really, this perverse image of uh, you know a feminine fatality <laughs> or deadliness. Um, but we also get this line too that gives us a hint of the lake's character or what the lake is reflecting in the story. And here's here's what it says. It was difficult to decide to what extent he, Elmo, was staring out at the lake and to what extent he was staring at the blackness inside him. And this line comes up while Elmo is trying to get Jurgen to see a familiar boat that Jurgen doesn't quite see lurking in Niemann's Wasser. And apart from this line hinting at Elmo's depression, you know, as I've been saying, we're given a symbolic look at what the lake is. So now we have maybe two senses of what the lake is here, of or ne- Neiman's Wasser. We have this idea about treaties and conventions that are a legal way for governments to explain away things they don't want responsibility for. We also have it in the, bla- the blackness of the human soul uh, that I think is evoked a few times in the story, Glenn. And I'm wondering if you saw anything else here that the lake symbolizes, you know, like maybe the lady of the lake, what does that symbolize to Elmo? And if Aikman is giving us this kind of microcosm reading that we'd see in Thomas Mann, or if he's just really telling us a very specific story about the symbols in Elmo's life.
0: Well, I think one thing that we might also want to take stock of in terms of this lake, uh, Lake Constance or the the Bowdoin Sea, uh, but also just lakes in general as they're functioning in this story, but also as they are functioning in the late 19th century among uh, nobility, aristocrats, uh, the the bourgeoisie is as this place of of romance, uh, lowercase r, romance, uh, love affairs, right? This image of lakes are for going boating with your love interest with your romantic partner or someone whom you would like to become your romantic partner. This is the imagery that we get of Victor and Elmo out on the lake. And I presume that this has something to do also with why Elmo goes to the tear garden to kill himself, that presumably early in their romance, that uh, this is something that Elmo and Elvira did together they went boating out on the the, the lake in the tear garden there um, and you know these other you know all the cities of of Europe have these lakes that are are for this you know there's the the serpentine in Hyde Park in London for example um, I guess there's one in Denver where you and I used to live as well in in city park I mean it's this this sort of thing right uh and this is something that we get all over literature of this period. I mean, honestly, I'm not even sure it's a thing people actually did so much as it's a
1: thing that happened in fiction. Right, I mean, a a big part of uh, the romantic movement and why we say this stuff is related to romance is that um, you can go out into nature to be alone with somebody. uh, And what that means is that nature is no longer dangerous. There is this big sense, this movement in romantic literature, that we have subdued nature, that it's no longer this chaotic wild, but that due to the work of, I don't know, building parks for the use of leisure, uh, putting hiking trails and forests, uh, people went to nature to have their own emotions reflected back to them and nature becomes this reflection of the human soul and so one way we can look maybe at what the lake is here is yes we have all this imagery of the romance happening on the surface of the lake but all of this is leading up to this period of time in world war 1 in the early 19th century where great, we've subdued nature. Now we're turning on ourselves as a species. And we've forgotten about that monster lurking beneath, you know, and, and that, that's part of also the discovery of the unconscious, I think, as well, that we see uh, brought up or evoked in this story that is a key part of modernism, which is a literary movement that grew out of World War I. Right. Although the, the naturalism of the Romantic
0: movement is happening at the same time that the Industrial Revolution is destroying nature. And that's not an accident, right? That That's not coincidental, right? There's a, a reason for that, right? As nature is disappearing, as there are more and more humans being born because of the Second Agricultural Revolution and the Industrial Revolution, that the toll on nature and also even the ability to be alone in a sort of pastoral environment, all is, is is diminishing. All of that is is fodder for the romantic idolization of nature, and then we do often think of this as culminating in the First World War. Nineteen fourteen is usually regarded as the end of what is called the long nineteenth century. And that this is a moment in which the Industrial Revolution, which already has dramatically reshaped human existence uh, in some very positive ways, but also in some very negative ways. But all of those seemingly uh, uh, domestic, uh, internal to a state, now is going to turn its attention to the industrialization of war, the industrialization of groups of humans killing each other and is regarded, certainly was responded to as, uh, as a total low point in the history of humanity, uh, one of the least humane moments in the history of humanity, but something that also should have been predicted, something that was predictable. And so you can look backwards then with this sense of dread and see all of the writing on the wall for a century, for a half a century, for a generation prior to this. And it does seem like Aikman is harnessing that exact type of rereading of the 19th century, especially the late 19th century here. But he's he's doing it with a lake monster instead.
1: Right. I mean, it's one of the reasons what you're describing, why I'm not really focusing on uh, the material history of the 19th century, because it's not really present in this story, which is a pastiche of 19th century liter- literary tropes and some 18th century ones as well. But there's no mention of industrialization, which is the context for Gothic literary tropes, the crumbling estate, the failed family mine, you know, all of these things, you know, this family has a house, even though it seems as though, in the context of the story elmo 's family could afford to keep up this estate. They choose not to, and it 's not even the estate that is the problem in this story. the you know hidden passageways or ghosts of the past or you know the love affair with the family member, whatever trope you want to lean on uh, that we get in Gothic literature. You know, which is often about the decline of aristocracy the The problem here is just they don 't want to keep it up and but there 's a lake monster that also you could just completely avoid if you want to <laughs> right The problem is really elmo um, and again that 's that 's this referral to the self that that becomes of, of the internal self that is the problem that you see a lot through. Uh, in modern literature, that exploration of the self, instead of the exploration of the world, and and I think, you know, I I brought up this the the way kind of, got the gothic emerges in the last bit of the story before modernity or modernism emerges. Early on in the story, we have Sturm und Drang, the the storm and angst. It opens with this: "I'm killing myself because my romantic love has failed." Then we move into these really deep senses of awe, the awe, and sublime uh, experience of nature that are hallmarks of romanticism. And it seems as though Aikman is moving us through these literary genres to give us a sense of the long 19th century, as you pointed out, leading up to World War I. And I wonder if you had another sense or had any comments on one, whether or not you agree with me that Aikman is intentionally going through these periods one by one to to structure his story um, that leads up to World War I, but also why you think Aikman isn't relying on the context of these tropes, instead really just creating a pastiche.
0: Well, one I I do agree with you. I think that these do. I think that Aikman does walk us through this in a, a largely chronological manner. Although you know all of these these different uh, genres or different modes of of, of storytelling or, or concerns of storytelling, you know they all have some overlap uh, with each other. But yeah, I think Aikman does walk us through these, or has Elmo kind of go through several different stories in this kind of chronological order here. But just for thinking about why Aikman doesn't. Approach this story more as historical fiction, uh, by which I mean, uh, as someone who is using the story to tell an audience uh, about uh, a historical period and to explain uh, change over time, and and what are the the things that are happening in society in in different areas, you know, politics and uh, economics, uh, cultural developments, social developments, uh, also material developments, things like technology, industrialization. Why is Aikman not calling attention to those? You know, I think that's not the type of story he's writing, right? He's not writing historical fiction in that sense. He is setting a story in the past, but is just writing it as a kind of, but but then is writing it, as you say, as a type of literary pastiche. But he does nonetheless populate his story with all of these bits of material culture that I think actually could be easy to overlook. I mean, for one, we get a lot about guns. In this story, and how guns work, and different types of guns, and who uses them, uh, even who cleans Elmo's guns... We also get a fair amount of information about trains and how they operate, how long they've been in operation in Germany, uh, what the schedules are like, how one arranges to get picked up from a train station when one is traveling into the country incognito. Uh, That gives us some information about the telegraph as well. And we get a lot actually about the materiality of Aristocratic houses. Uh, This is contrasted intentionally here in this kind of gothicness of the estate that is being allowed to collapse uh, or at least linger into a state of disrepair by Elmo's father versus the very well maintained and new mansion in Berlin that is adjacent to all of the other aristocratic mansions at the heart of Berlin. Uh, And that gives us quite a bit about the houses there. We get a lot actually about the materiality of clothing. This is, this is done in part to give us a class contrast here, uh, but also there's quite a bit of uh, gender contrast here in the way that Aikman writes about the materiality of clothing. And then we also get some bit here about music as a a kind of economic or or business, I should say, music as a business, when we're learning about Elvira's backstory. and There's a a comparison to the way that music as a business operates in Berlin versus the way that music operates in Paris. So I do think that there is actually a lot more materiality in this story than you're giving Aikman credit for, Brandon, but I think it's because
1: it's kind of on the sly. Uh, that's an excellent point. I think what Aikman is doing with the materiality is giving us these uh, reality effects, which feel so true to form in a 19th century fictional piece that they're easier that they're easy to overlook. When, like me, your focus is on what Aikman is doing with genre here, right? Uh, which is which is where I want to go next. Looking at these modes of literature. That Aikman is using to build his pastiche. But I wonder, you know, to me, this story feels like one of the things that Aikman is examining is how we, as a society, he's challenging his audience to look at the way that we respond to the tragedy of unnecessary death. And this is where things get a little hairy in this story to me because. I don't know if it felt this way to you, Glenn, but the tone at the end of the story is almost comic when Victor dies. And yet we are dragged through the mud in agony with Elmo about his little breakup with Elvira. And so I wondered, and I'm going to talk about tragedy a little bit more because I want to especially look at the way that Aikman is using tragedy as a class dynamic. But I wonder if Aikman then isn't using these literary genres to, and using the 19th century tropes to trivialize the way in which these literary periods prior to modernism or World War I engage with death and the causes of death, you know, it it just feels so out of balance to me, the agony, the angst of Elmo and this kind of glib line about Victor's death at the end, it being a good death.
0: Well, I think one of the contrasts there between Victor's death and Elmo's attempted suicide at the beginning of the story is that for Elmo at the beginning of the story, life and actually for Elmo at the end of the story too, life is the tragedy, right? And so he's he's seeking death to relieve him of this emotionally painful eg- existence which of course that in itself is is a tragedy right that there is someone who is hurting this much and has no close relationships with anyone else except for Elvira uh, such that 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 someone would actually notice this and and help him in some way that itself just from an external perspective is a real tragedy but the the point i'm trying to make here is that Elmo is regarding life as being the tragedy, uh, but then I think when we see Victor die, right, that that death, we know as an audience, that type of death, that pointless death, that is the actual tragedy that stands in contrast to Elmo.
1: It's a really nice touch of irony here because it, it seems as though one thing that it highlights is how selfish Elmo is as A character. He's very self absorbed. His friend, who he gets to dress up as a woman and treats like a sister and seems to enjoy that type of play uh, with, is mangled in a boating accident, loses his hand, which can also happen on a sailboat uh, as well. It doesn't just have to happen by dipping your hand in a lake with a lake monster he just kind of ignores and Victor wastes away and he comes back like 8 years later and still has nothing to do with Victor and Victor gets better after Elmo's death and and since we're talking about them now we should talk about the way this this lake monster is having something to do with uh failed romance and unrequited Love, you know, why do you think Victor heals after Elmo's death? It can't just be that he's magically fought off this bacterial infection from a, a freshwater <laughs> shark, right? No, it cannot be that. I, I I
0: think that what you're pointing to here is that when the object of Victor's unrequited love no longer exists such that, uh, you know, it's not technically unrequited love. I think at that point, if there's no possibility of it ever being requited, that Victor is is cured uh, of, of this, that he's had this kind of obsession with Elmo and now that that can't ever possibly be fulfilled he is ready to to move on it, it you know it's presented here a bit magically i think right because we're not getting the story from victor's perspective we we don't ever get into his interiority. We don't get to his emotionality. We don't see the uh, probably depression that he's he's suffering following this attack. We don't see that. But that does seem to be the, the thing that Aikman is pointing to, and in doing so with a, a bit of dark humor, I think.
1: Yeah, I think the dark humor is absolutely there. I and mean, it just, uh, this whole bit, I mean, about Victor and Elmo, uh, the way in which, you know, Elmo is completely consumed by this lake monster, has no chance for recovery. Uh, And that represents his feelings about Elvira. Also, Can help us understand maybe Victor's feelings about Elmo. Victor loses a little bit of a hand. He goes into a dark depression for a while. And what he really needs to heal is his, you know, the object of his love to die, I guess. Elmo, just nothing's going to make him happy. It, It astonishes me the way that Aikman is able to balance these two. Wholly different senses of what the lake monster is in this story, and still maintain a real sense of clarity in the symbolism here. I'm not sure how he pulls this off, because unrequited love and World War One don't quite seem to me like they can really co-mingle as symbols. No, it's a masterpiece what Aikman has done
0: here. I think if we knew how he did it, we would be uh, we'd be selling more stories. Yeah, though, maybe
1: in the 1970s, we'd have to go back. I, I don't know if we're quite writing the stories that the, that the market can bear these days. The, the last thing I guess I really want to lean into here, and the thing that, as I said at the top, top of the show, really interests me about this story is the relationship between tragedy and class dynamics. And we've been kind of toying with this uh, through some of the other bits of our discussion so far. But here's where I really want to dive into it. The classical definition of tragedy in terms of drama doesn't really require that the protagonist die at the end, though that does often happen. Instead, uh, tragedy refers to an arc of a story where a person in a high position, culturally or politically speaking, is brought down or brought into a lower cultural or political position. Often, you know, you'll see this result in destitution or madness, something along those lines. And it's important that this bringing low isn't the result of some. Justice necessarily, you know, where the protagonist is getting their just desserts. We don't feel where we don't feel a sense of justice being served at the end of the story, but something more sad, something more cathartic is taking place. The type of story where a high person is being brought low, a person in a high position is being brought low as the result of their own failures, moral failures as a character is tragic, though that has more of the ring of a a morality play to it. In in Niemann's Fosser, Elmo, our protagonist, is brought low. He is shown to be kind of haunting this crumbling mansion, reading crumbling books. He's perhaps made undignified by his response to heartbreak the end of his love affair with Elvira causes Elmo to spiral into depression and suicidal ideation. He ultimately spends a year reading 15th century theologians and, as I said, hanging out in a decrepit castle. And ultimately, as we've seen, he does die. He gets eaten, devoured by a lake monster. This is all typical to your tragic story and tragic arc, I guess. But We see time and again in this story, the way that other classes either think Elmo has gone mad or have to live quietly in their own grief, as in the case of Spalt, whose daughter works for Elmo's family. And Elmo doesn't know or really care about any of this. This is information for us as readers, as an audience. Elmo's too deep in his own Grief and pain to care about the concerns of others. And so, as I mentioned before, it looks to me as though Aikman is leaning heavily into the idea in this story that tragedy is something that can only be afforded by the leisure class. In other words, you know, Aikman would be the wrong man to write Death of a Salesman. So, my question to you, Glenn, is. Do you find that Aikman's use of tragedy or writing this story under the tragic umbrella is playing a game of irony with the audience? Or do you feel that he's being sincere in representing tragedy as being something only able to be experienced by the leisure class? I'm not sure that I would describe
0: it as irony, though, though. Though maybe maybe it is, but I do think that Aikman is being quite sharp in, in, in pointing this out, uh, in in showing us Elmo as someone who, uh, in his young twenties, goes through a breakup with presumably the first woman he's had romantic involvement with, and simply retreats to his decrepit family estate and yeah, spends a year reading early modern books about magic and staring out a window and ultimately dying because he's he's doing this, that this is something that he's only able to do because he doesn't have to work in order to have food. He doesn't have to work in order to have clothing. He doesn't have to work in order to have shelter. He has other people who do that for him. And this is the real contrast with Spalt, right? Who certainly suffers a much greater tragedy than Elmo himself does in that he loses his wife and can't care for his daughter and has to give her up, has to give up his baby, but he cannot wallow in that. And having a purpose, having some role in a community... I think certainly is something that will help. It's certainly something that helps most of us get over a tragedy, helps us deal with grief. It is part of the process of dealing with that. And Elmo, because he is a wealthy aristocrat, can can do without that and chooses to do without that. And, and in doing that, actually chooses to do without something that could be healing for him. And this is all exacerbated by the fact that uh, also nobody knows where he is, that his family doesn't know where he is for a year, and they don't seem to care where he is. No one comes looking for him. You know, he travels incognito out to the the patrimony and doesn't tell anyone where he's gone. The house staff pres- seemingly doesn't report back that this is where Elmo is. No one comes looking for him, and so he's allowed to exist in this isolation from everyone for a year, and. To me, that seems like that's the real tragedy for Elmo. It's not the breakup. It's this
1: isolation. Elmo's also a bit of a patronizing character, but I, I, you know, he, he doesn't consider the servants of the household to be really on his level. And so you say he's alone, but he's, he's not. He's Isolating himself, which he, I think you've also pointed out. I want to contrast, uh, you know, what Aikman is doing here, or show points of contrast to demonstrate what Aikman is doing here with tragedy. So here, here's what Aikman writes about uh, Elmo's state of mind. He says this: the survival of the lost beloved being so incomparably more afflicting than his or her death. The bereaved is the more likely to vary bitter grief with occasional episodes of hysterical elation as the dying man isolated amid the polar or Himalayan snows has quarter hours of almost peaceful confidence that of course he will emerge even believing that he sees how. And this is what I mean by irony here, right? Aikman is comparing the breakup romantic heartbreak to freezing to death (laughs) In Some um, bleak terrain and drawing a genuine comparison between them here, uh, and telling us that that's a genuine experience that we need to take very seriously from Elmo instead of buying him, you know, some vodka at a bar and telling him <laughs> he needs to meet someone new, uh, which is you know how Romeo and Juliet opens basically. But then we also get this line about how Elmo views Spalt uh, when he sees him. Herr Spalt was the schoolmaster. In other days, Elmo had not infrequently asked him in to share some evening concoction he, Elmo, had himself prepared according to regimental tradition. Indeed, Elmo considered that he had learned much from Spalt, whom he deemed to be palpably no ordinary village disciplinarian, He assumed that at some point in his career or his life, Spalt had been in trouble so that he had sunk below his proper position in scholarship. And so we have the sense that Elmo really respects Spalt and almost views him as an equal. And so he must have been brought low. He experienced that tragic arc in his life, which we then learn about. And yet Elmo has no real compassion for Spalt, we do as readers, and so I think that that to me the way that Aikman describes these two situations—you know, Elmo's uh, soul, the state of his soul, and then the way he thinks of others uh, as being equal but still a peasant or brought down—I mean, this class stuff is all over the story. That Aikman is really being ironic about. The way that class informed the ability to have emotions, the ability to have an unconscious, the ability to experience these tragic senses of life that populate, you know, 19th century literature about the aristocracy. And I, and I just, you know, I can't underline that point too much more because, um, you know, I think we're running out of time, but I just think Aikman is really, as you said before, Glenn, sharp It is sharp the way he is kind of cutting through the mode of writing that is in so much 19th century literature, especially romantic literature. I think we should not leave this topic behind,
0: Brandon, without also comparing Spalt to Elmo's father. Uh, Both of these characters are, uh, both of these characters have lost a wife and then have had to think about what to do regarding their family after that. And for Spalt, this moment is a a real tragedy. He cannot care for a baby without remarrying. And he he does not want to remarry because the love of his life has just died. And so he gives his daughter to an orphanage and tells us, tells Elmo that he took care to make sure that she was going to a good place. And also we learn that he has kept up with her. He knows who she is and how she's carrying on in the world. And she's working for this aristocratic household, which is uh, for a peasant. That's a pretty good job, right? That's better than uh, uh, working as a seamstress or better than being a farmer in in terms of material comforts, I should say. And so that's how Spalt deals with this. Elmo's father loses his wife. I don't think that we're told if that happens in childbirth or not, but he loses his wife. But of course, he is wealthy. He's one of the richest people in in Germany, one of the richest people in the world. So he doesn't have to worry about the material support for his children, but he does seem to emotionally neglect them. He doesn't remarry either, but there is a woman brought into the household, which is something that which is something that Spalt says he could not have done, that if he did something like that, it would have been deemed improper and he would have lost his job. But this is something that's available to the aristocracy, though it's actually not clear that Elmo's father is even the driving impetus there, because we're told that Sophie Anna has recently lost her husband, and she kind of just arrives here like Mary Poppin. She just kind of shows up (laughs) to care for the children. But presumably, this is because her status as a widow is precarious in society, and she needs to attach herself to another man with money, another household with money, in order to make sure that her material existence, her material comfort is guaranteed. But what we definitely can say about Elmo's father and his regard for his children is that he never tells them why he doesn't ever go to the patrimony on Lake Constance, why he doesn't ever go to the family hereditary estate on Lake Constance and why he doesn't take them and also why he doesn't want them to go, why he doesn't maintain it. He doesn't tell them about the monster in the lake that did something to him <laughs> when he was younger. And uh, if Elmo had known about this, a whole lot of trouble would have been saved for both Elmo and Victor here. And so there's a sense in which that is, 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 part of the tragedy here that Elmo's father has all of the means to care for his children actively after the death of his wife and just chooses not to and loses one of them because of it. And so we see that Elmo's father, although He's, re, he's hailed here by the narrator of the story as being a, an excellent ruler and well-loved by his subjects, is a terrible father and loses one of his children because of it. And that's a real contrast there. And, I, and it's wrapped up in class.
1: It is absolutely. And of course, when we get to this final twist at the end of the story about the senseless lives, this, the number of lives senselessly lost in World War I, all of this business about romantic tragedy kind of snaps into a new alignment, that's saying, this is all convention, how we feel about these things, because we're taught to feel a certain way about this romantic loss, this tragedy, this this uh, sense of angst and anguish that we feel when we have heartbreak or when our match rejects us, as in the case of Sofiana, who but we get the sense that Elmo maybe felt that there should have been a match made between him and her so that she could stay protected under the uh, family. But all of this stuff also goes away within the next 30 years. It's all gone. And I think that Aikman is pointing that out as well, not only the way we're taught to think about these things, uh, to have these feelings through reading these literatures, through aligning our emotions and giving voice to our emotions through these types of stories, but then how there are these massive events uh, that have taken place in the 20th century that break even the possibility of this type of story being told, because how can we call it? tragedy when held up to something like World War I.
0: I do also want to point out before we leave this topic, and we've got one more thing we'll talk about here, but I do want to uh, point out that this is the second story that we have done now that is written in the 1970s by an English writer that ends with, uh, and then World War I happened, and uh, wow, that was terrible. And uh, that other story is... The the Lady of the House of Love by Angela Carter, which uh, we recorded uh, quite a long time ago, actually, as a commission. that Actually, I guess may not have actually aired yet, but uh, listeners will have that to look forward to. We have not actually spoiled anything about that story, but it really struck me as a commonality here uh, that our sample size of... English horror stories written in the 1970s is just these two stories. And uh, they both include this. And so there's just something interesting there about the way that perhaps that generation of writers is looking back at the First World War and seeing it as this type of tragedy and trying to reckon with it in in terms of Gothic horror.
1: I, I think that's right. And it's really a uh... A fascinating approach too to go back to World War One instead of World War Two or something along those lines, uh, and and it's because of course you know in university and in uh, primary school and secondary school these are the types of stories you're reading so there's a, co- a common culture around reading 19th century literature and its development into the Gothic and then butting that right up against World War I. And I think it's, uh, I don't know, it's an awesome choice. It's not something I'm sure that we can do today without it itself, that abutment being pastiche, right? Well, I want to move us
0: on here at the end, Brandon, from pastiche to, I, I guess, authenticity. We have talked a lot about uh, late 18th and then 19th century literary movements and and artistic movements more broadly here and i think one of the things that we've not done though is really name any names other than thomas mann and besides magic mountain by thomas mann what are some recommendations that you might have for our listeners about uh, getting a taste of of german literature of the the long 19th century
1: well, it's all going to be Thomas Mann. So, Death in Venice for <laughs> sure. <laughs> Felix Krull. Uh, anything in the Death in Venice collection is really good. More broadly, you can go back to Goethe, who really was instrumental in the Sturm und Drang movement. Um, in terms of philosophy, you have Hegel. You could read to get a sense of the the you know the Zeitgeist, which is a term that comes from Hegel, I think you have of course also in another vein in french literature in search of lost time that uh leads up to world war 1 and goes through that a little bit and then you have the adventure fiction of like alexander dumas that is full of this style of switching points of view uh to really pad out word count in in those novels that he wrote uh, serialized. You know, when I was t- talking about serialized fiction in our recap episode, I really had Ma in mind because he was consistently weaving in all these other stories and points of view in order to extend the, the length of his works of uh, fiction. Yeah, though I think probably here in this case for Aikman, Dickens is perhaps
0: the the more important model. Right, and, uh, absolutely. Uh, D- yes. Dickens, uh, strangely, not appearing on this podcast as of as of yet, though. Uh, uh, you know, someday we'll we'll have to do some Dickens. But uh, what about music, Brandon? Was there any German Romantic music of the
1: eighteen seventies or eighteen eighties that provided some mood music for you this time? Uh, I, you know, I didn't get to listen to much music listening to, or when when reading this story, I was uh, reading it at the, at the dining room table and watching my son uh, while my wife recovered from a a trip to see family. So I, I didn't, I was keeping it kind of quiet. I don't know, maybe anything that baby Einstein or uh, maybe <laughs> Bach. I was actually listening to quite a lot of Bach, I suppose I put on for a little while. Uh, my son's not quite old enough to need novelty. So I always feel bad just playing long playlists uh, for him because there's he'll never get a sense of what's going on. Um, and then I also refuse to listen to music on repeat. So we're often at an impasse, him and I, <laughs> uh, when it comes to listening to music together at this point. <laughs> yeah, the most played musical tracks uh, that
0: I've got actually are box cello suites, which is largely because when Finch was the age that uh, your son is now, uh, we listened to those on repeat. It was actually our our no no seriously, it's time to take a nap music for uh, the first year <laughs> of his life. But uh, but that's a totally different mood than uh, uh, than what uh, what this story is going for. But yeah, I don't really know German music of this period well. My knowledge of German music really kind of stops when Beethoven dies, which is uh, 1827 or something like that, you know, before 1830, shortly before 1830, uh, because I'm really much more of a Francophile, I think, when it comes to Romantic music and and Russophile as well, I should say. So, you know, I know that Brahms is composing during this period, but I don't really know Brahms all that well, even though we actually use Brahms on the network. He supplies the uh, intro and outro music for hanging out with the Dream King. The only piece of music that I went to, uh, while reading this story is actually something that Finch and I do listen together, which is the, uh, uh, flute sonata by, uh, Reineke, uh, which is called the undine or undine uh, sonata because it is a musical uh, adaptation of uh the famous uh, romantic mermaid story and it's a beautiful and and, and kind of haunting t- piece of music that I, I recommend on its own but I will say it is actually uh, about a successful romance and so it's kind of happy and just wasn't <laughs> it was wasn't screaming sea monster even though it is about you know a a non-human entity that lives <laughs> that lives in the ocean and is a woman. Um, but uh just didn't quite work out. But it is something Finch and I have been listening to uh, because, well, it's time, you know, Finch is too It's time to learn about mermaids, you know. So we've been uh, we've been doing that uh, across media. But uh, I don't know that I really recommend that for the mood of this piece. So I guess really what I'm saying is that uh, I need to learn more. And if uh, listeners have <laughs> musical suggestions, for me at least, I would love to have them.
1: Yeah. And, and uh... There's so much actually we didn't talk about in this story that I'm now realizing, like about sirens and mermaids, uh, sea monsters, German myth, German folklore, uh, because I guess that that didn't quite interest us as much as the history time period that this story takes place in and literary genres. So, if you as a listener have any interest in German folklore and the way that this story is evoking that. I hope you'll join us on our forums to talk to us about that. Uh, but I think that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us on
0: our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Uh, the forum there as well is a great place to come talk with us about uh, German folklore or uh, late 19th century German music or anything else you would like. You can also always find us on our subreddit as well. Next time, we are actually going to take a bit of parental leave, but we're going to slot in a commissioned episode that we've uh, already recorded and aired for supporters on Patreon. Uh, This is a story by Margaret Atwood. It is called Lucis Naturae. And then after that, we'll be back with our next regularly scheduled episode. That is going to be a Borges story. This is The Gospel According to Mark. And until then, till next time, we greet you and say farewell.